Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will deep dive the world of youth sport by exploring the purpose and challenges present in current day youth sports. So if you've ever wondered why states like Virginia are extending recess time for grade schoolers, or what parents and practitioners can do to assure the best possible sport experience for their children, this is the podcast for you. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. Today, I want to switch things up a little. And instead of talking about some big concepts within this realm of sport or sport management, I want to focus on a level of sport. And I want to talk about some of the issues and things that are going on within this level of sport. And then focus on what sport managers who are dealing with these individual athletes at this level can do to try to assure that they get the most out of their participation. And the level of sport I want to focus on today is youth sport. And I want to start by talking about a couple of different things. I want to talk about the idea of athlete organized versus adult organized and then move in to talk about the role of parents and coaches within sport and then talk about some of the issues and conclude by examining how we can deal with these issues that are currently present. But to begin, we need to start by asking ourselves a very basic question. And that is, why is sport participation important for children in the first place? Why do we value our children being able to participate in sport and recreation activities at all? Well, if you go back and listen to some of our earlier podcasts where we examine the history of sport in ancient societies and then the history of sport in early America, what you'll learn is that sport and recreation in the United States was originally put in place to help keep children off the streets and help keep them away from having unstructured free time. The worry in the early days of the United States was that if children had this unstructured free time, that they would use it to get themselves in trouble. And a lot of it's tied into these religious ideologies that said idleness was the devil's worship. And so we started to build playgrounds and have structured forms of physical activities to get children doing something that was overseen by an adult to make sure that they were behaving properly. Now, as time passed, children started to enjoy these activities and we had more and more free time. So those activities became more structured and parents became more involved with shaping them. And what we learned over time by having these children participate is what is still true today, that by participating in sport and recreational activities, Children learn a great deal. First off, they learn motor skills. Think about it. If you're playing baseball or tennis, you're learning hand-eye coordination. If you're playing soccer, you're learning eye-foot coordination. You're learning how to move your body in athletic ways. You're learning motor skills as a child that are going to be beneficial for you as you grow up. But that's just the tip of the iceberg about why sport and recreation participation is important for children. You also learn social skills through participation in these activities. You learn about how to communicate with others. You learn about teamwork and how to be a member of a team and work within a team to achieve a goal. 
You might even learn leadership skills if within that team you're a person that other people look up to. You learn how to follow rules in the direction of authority figures who are your coaches or the leaders in the activities in which you're engaged. There are rules involved with every sport. Sport, by definition, is a structured physical activity. So you're learning what those rules are and you're learning how to follow those rules. And if done well, sport can also help children develop confidence and self-esteem. So we have those social values that we can get through youth participation in sport. Sport participation also teaches children about physical activity. And again, if done correctly, it can set a child up to be physically active their whole life. Think about when you were a child. Did you participate in sports? Did you have positive experiences within that participation? If so, many of you probably took some of those activities and some of those skill sets you learned and you still practice them today. I have so many friends of mine who grew up playing soccer as a child of five, six, seven years old and continue to play the sport today in adult leagues. Why? Because they get that joy of participation, that feeling of accomplishment, that sense of being on the team that they learn as a child that they still want to get. I grew up loving to run. I used to run a ton when I played soccer. And it set me up to have this positive association with physical activity and fitness. And so I still run to this day. So I can learn about those physical activities and it can set me up to continue to be in shape. On the other side, if we have children who aren't participating in forms of recreation or sport, those children are more likely as adults to be obese, to be inactive, to not participate in physical activities. And finally, sport participation can provide children with the avenue to meet other children, to make new friends and be exposed to new people. Oftentimes, that is one of the main reasons that parents want to get their children involved in sports, to help them meet new people or be exposed to maybe people who are different than them, people who have a different background. To get that exposure helps develop the child into a well-rounded adult. So sport participation or participation in any form of recreational activity has value to children where they can take a ton from it. But it's important to note that not all sporting or physical activity is equal. And in fact, we have two different categories of sport participation that it's important for children to be involved in. The first type of sport participation that we have is something that we call athlete-organized sport. And when I give this lecture, when I talk to students, or when I talk to parents, I always point to this and I tell them to think of the movie Sandlot. And if you've never seen Sandlot, it's a story of a town where young boys play baseball together every day over the summer, and there are no parents involved. These young boys just come together, and they have enough to play, and they kind of set their own rules. They make rules about how they're going to deal with home runs, where the boundaries are going to be, how they're going to actually play the game if they don't have enough members for the team. But the point is, is the athletes are the ones that are organizing that entire sport. And that movie is a prime example of this. And if you've never seen that movie, that's okay. Just think back to your youth. Think back to the physical activities or sports or recreational activities that you used to participate in when no adults were around. Maybe think back to recess in middle school or elementary school. When I was in elementary school, we always used to play football. But 
It wasn't football by the rules of the NFL or by the rules of youth football. We would have 20 kids sometimes or 10 kids. And we would all come up and we would pick teams. And then we would set what the boundaries were. And we would decide where the touchdown was and where the out of bounds was. And we normally would just pick random objects and say that tree over there and that tree over there. And then we would say what type of rules we were playing by. Were we playing you had four downs to score a touchdown? Or was there a certain area where you could get a first down? Were we playing two-hand touch or were we playing tackle? How are we dealing with rushing the quarterback? Did you have to count five seconds before you blitzed? We, as the participants in that activity, we set the rules. And this highlights one of the key benefits that youth can get from these athlete-organized activities. Children, when they engage in them, they have to exercise their own creativity. They have to problem solve. They have to determine how we're going to deal with the rules or what we're going to do if someone breaks those rules. They have to know how they're going to deal with disputes about what happens on the field. All of this creativity and problem solving is something that you just don't get with our other type of sporting activity, which is adult organized sport. Now, in adult organized sport, this is your general form of sport that we think about. This is where we have an adult coach. Maybe it's a parent of one of the team members, or maybe it's a volunteer from the community come in and actually coach the children. Just like with athlete-organized sport, adult-organized sport also has benefits. However, the benefits are very different to the child. For example, with adult-organized sport, we learn as children how to follow the authority of a leader or how to follow what a coach says. That's a very important skill because later in life, we are going to be working for other individuals. We're going to be working under a boss. and We're going to have to learn how to take what they say and turn it into action. And we are first exposed to that oftentimes through this form of adult organized sport. We also learn about the game itself, whether that's soccer or baseball or swimming or diving. We learn the physical skill sets that are involved with the game. We learn, for example, how to throw a football, the correct tackling technique for football, or how to pitch a curveball or throw a fastball, or the correct way to perform something in gymnastics. Those physical skills are oftentimes not something that is taught when other children are organizing the sporting activity. Because when children are playing, they're not worried about having the correct form or doing something the right way. They're just out there to try to have fun. But when the adult is organizing the sport and we have someone actually coaching, we do and should worry about performing the physical activity correctly. So we should be teaching them how to tackle properly. And not just that, as I mentioned, we learned about the tactics of the game. In soccer, for example, we learn about the different formations that we can play, whether that's a 4-4-2 or a 3-5-2 or a 4-3-3. Each of those different lineups bring with it different tactical advantages and disadvantages. And there's situations where each of those lineups is beneficial. Well, if I'm just playing soccer in the backyard with a group of friends and we're organizing and creating the rules, I don't learn about any of those tactical advantages of those formations. But if I'm playing it under an adult coach, I can learn because they're there to help teach me. So both athlete organized sport and adult organized sport have distinct advantages. The important thing here for sport managers or for future sport managers or for parents, maybe even most importantly, is that we need to make sure that our children have access to both types 
of organized sport, both athlete organized and adult organized. Because as you can see by talking about the benefits that are unique to each of them, if we only provide our children with one type of activity, then we are precluding the benefits the other type of activity has to offer. So as a sport manager, which is how I look at this, what that tells me is that I need to make sure that my organization, if it's involved with children playing sports, I need to make sure that my organization is set up to allow for both things. So a great example of this is to think about if you work at a YMCA or a local parks and rec organization. I need to make sure I provide not only a structured basketball league where I have coaches in distinct teams, but I also need to make sure that I have open gym where children can just come and pick up a basketball and form their own teams. And maybe they play half court three on three one day, or maybe they play knockout another day, or maybe they play 21 a different day. But I need to provide them that opportunity to go out on the court and use their imagination and problem solve and create their own rules. And then I also need to provide the structure of having an adult organized sport or a basketball league where I have coaches teaching them how to shoot the ball, different game strategies, where they're learning how to work within the confines of their team. By providing both types of opportunity at a YMCA or a local Parks and Rec organization, I'm making sure that the children that I'm trying to service are getting the maximum amount out of the sport and recreation opportunities I have available. Now, those are the general categories that we have when we talk about different types of youth sport. But we can then go and talk about the sports specifically. And I want to spend a couple minutes talking about some of the trends that we're currently seeing in sport participation. And these numbers come from the Aspen Institute, which actually does a study every year to look at trends in participation and trends in youth sport in general. And so, a couple of interesting things that we're seeing. The average number of sports that a child, and in their study, a child is defined as someone between the ages of 6 and 12. They cut off at 12 because at 13, these are children that are going into high school, and so it's interscholastic sport that they're involved in, not necessarily youth sport. So the average number of sports a child partakes in that they have found is 1.5 sports. So that means if I have two children standing next to me, and both of them are playing sports, one of the child is playing one sport and the other child is probably playing two. That's a fairly low number. I look back to my own youth and how many sports that I was involved in during that age. I was on the swim team. I was on the dive team. I was playing soccer. I was playing basketball. I was playing baseball. I was doing gymnastics. That is six different types of sports that I was involved in. Now, I was fortunate. I had a stay-at-home mother who was able to take me to all those sporting activities and take my sisters to the same number of those activities. But I participated in a lot of sports. So one of the trends that we're seeing over time is that children are partaking in less and less sports. And oftentimes, they're doing this because they're specializing at an earlier age in one specific sport. And we'll come back and we'll talk about that more here coming up. If we just look at the most popular youth sports, the number one most popular youth sport is something that I would actually classify more as a recreational activity, but they have it listed as a sport, and that is bicycling. The study found that 4.79 million youths aged 6 to 12 are biking multiple times a year. So they're engaging in a form of recreation or sport activity. Now, 
it's important to note that bicycling, oftentimes it means we're not going out and engaging in races. We're just biking around the neighborhood. This is something that we could classify almost as that athlete organized activity because it's children biking in different places, having that sense of freedom, getting to explore, getting those benefits of that athlete organized activity. The second most popular sport is basketball, with 4.225 million American youths participating, followed by baseball, which is at 3.9 million, soccer at 2.3 million Americans, then tennis, which was a surprise to me, at 1.2 million, followed by flag football, which is 988,000, and then tackle football, which was found that 871,000 youths participated in that. Now, a few interesting notes about these, because just going you numbers doesn't mean anything. One of the things we can do is we can look at the percent increase or decrease from the previous years. And that's going to give us a little bit more information than just looking at what the raw number is. So if we look at tackle football, an interesting conversation has happened within the media and in the larger scale within our society about youth participating in tackle football. And something that we continuously hear in the media is that participation in tackle football at the youth level is decreasing. Well, this study validates that. In fact, of the 15 sports that were listed, tackle football saw the highest percentage decrease from 2016 to 2017 as it lost 11.8% of its participants. The interesting thing is on the other side, Flag football was the second highest increase in the number of participants as it went up 9.9% between those years. So interestingly, we're seeing this shift from tackle football for youth into flag football. And that's showing maybe a change in our society and an increase that parents have with maybe some of these concussion or long-term injury. Looking outside of just the type of sports that individuals are participating in, it's interesting to look at the demographics of the youth who are participating. And in fact, the study does just that. And they found that 61.9% of males between 6 and 11 are participating in at least one sport, and that 52.3% of females are participating. Those numbers are pretty close to the previous five years, a, a little bit of change here and there, but nothing too significant. What's more interesting, though, is if we look at the rate of participation not by gender, but based off of household income. They divided this into five different groups, but I just want to focus on the polls of those groups, and that is individuals who make under $25,000 and individuals who make over $100,000. The reason we can just focus on those polls is that there's an increasing trend, and that is for individual families who make under $25,000, only 34.1% of children from those households are participating in sport. On the other end, if a household is making over $100,000 a year, it was found that 69% of the children in that household are participating in sports. And interestingly, as we move up from the under 25,000 to the over 100,000, we see a steady increase in the rate of participation. And it's important to point out that these numbers are significantly different from just five years ago. Five years ago, if a household made under $25,000, you still had 46.9% of children in that household participating in sports. At the $100,000 level, 
those households had 63% of the children participating. So what this shows us is that over the last five years, we've had a widening in this gap between individuals who are making under 100000 and individuals who are making over $100,000, where the rate of participation is dropping steadily and significantly for those at the lower income level. For sport managers, this should be very troubling because if we combine this with the fact that high income households are significantly less likely to have children who are physically inactive than lower incomes, and that's individuals who make under 25K, they have a a physical inactivity rate of 30%. So one third of the children in a household that makes under $20,000 aren't doing any physical activity versus in a household where the parents make over $100,000, only 10% of the children aren't physically active. So if we combine this information, we start to see the trend that youth sport is being driven by money. That if you do not have money, you are being excluded from participation. This leads us right into discussing some of the major issues that we're seeing in youth sport today. So let's just begin with what we were talking about. One of the major issues we're seeing is the cost of youth sport. The fact of the matter is, the numbers that we just talked about illustrate that youth sport is more and more becoming a pay-to-play structure. That we are depending more and more on the participants to pay exorbitant amounts of money for specialized training, for facility usage, for travel. And as a result, individuals or families who don't have that extra income, that discretionary money to spend on youth participating in sports, are ending up having their children not participate at all, or at least not participate at all in the adult organized activities. Remember, we just said there's value to be gained from those adult organized activities. And we as a society are making those so expensive that we are not affording the opportunity to all children. This becomes increasingly problematic for sport managers because as a sport manager, we should want to provide youth and children with as many opportunities to participate in sport as we can. But the cost structure is getting so much that we're excluding a massive portion of our population, then we're not able to do our job. So what do we need to do as sport managers to help address this issue of rising costs? Well, one of the things that we can do is we can try to emphasize and rebuild the local community sport programs. So often now, the local community sport programs are seen as secondary or are just getting eroded completely because of lack of governmental funding. Instead, what we have are these select programs or these high-cost programs where a child or a family has to pay thousands and thousands of dollars so that their children get specialized training from a coach. So we as sport managers, if we build those community programs back, those programs that are funded in large part or completely from taxpayer money, we can start to get more children at that lower end involved back in the youth sport programs. But the cost structure isn't the only issue that we're seeing within youth sporting activities. Another major issue we're seeing in youth sports is the increase in the number of injuries the participants are having. And majority of those injuries that we're seeing are due to overuse of the body. Think about 
baseball players as young as 10 getting Tommy John surgery. For those of you who don't know, Tommy John surgery is a replacement of the ulnar collateral ligament, which is a ligament on the inside of your elbow. It's a major surgery. I had it when I was in college after sustaining a soccer injury. It is a nine-month to one-year recovery where they have to go into another part of your body, pull a tendon out, replace the torn tendon, move the nerve. And we are having 10-year-olds get that surgery. There's even reports about youth getting that surgery electively or preemptively because they're worried about tearing that ligament. And oftentimes, they're tearing it because they're not using their body correctly. They're throwing too many pitches. They are going out there and throwing curveballs when their body is not fully developed. We see the same thing with things like ACL tears and ACL repairs in soccer players. We see youth runners getting compartment syndrome and having to have their legs have massive surgery done to them. A lot of this, as I said, is due to the fact that during this time as a youth, when we're 6 to 13 years old, our bodies are not fully developed. We are still growing. And oftentimes, as we grow and we overuse muscles in the wrong way or overuse ligaments or tendons in the wrong ways, we are causing injury to them. Add on to the fact that so many of our children have poor nutrition so our bodies can't heal and recover properly, we're setting ourselves up with this youth population to have them get injured. Now, as a sport manager, we need to be aware of this. And we need to try to set in place rules that keep children from overusing their bodies. And we need to do that to not only protect the children, but to override oftentimes some of the will and wishes of the parent. A great example of an organization that has done this is Little League Baseball. Noting the high rate of these Tommy John surgeries, Little League Baseball set in place rules to limit pitching. The rules state, the manager must remove the pitcher when said pitcher reaches the limit for his or her age group as noted below, but the pitcher may remain in the game at another position. Here are the pitch requirements. For kids who are 13 to 16, they can throw a maximum of 95 pitches per day. Notice it doesn't say per game because oftentimes in youth sports, we're playing multiple games a day. So a youth between 13 and 16 can only throw 95 pitches a day. From 11 to 12, they can only throw 85 pitches. From 9 to 10, they can only throw 75 pitches. And from 7 to 8, they can only throw 50 pitches per day. The rule goes on to say that pitchers league aged 14 and under must adhere to the following rest requirements. So not only do we have rules about the number of pitches they can throw in a day, but they've also put in place rules that require that pitches that require that pitchers actually get rest. And it go on to say if a player pitches 66 or more pitches in a day, you have to take four calendar days of rest. If a pitcher pitches 51 to 65 pitches a day, they need three days of rest. If it's 36 to 50 pitches, it's two days of rest. 21 to 35, it's one day of rest. In 1 to 20 pitches, they don't have to rest at all. But this is a great example of what sport managers should be doing, or at least should look to do. By putting into place this type of rule, the sport manager is trying to protect the child to make sure they don't have that injury. And why are overuse injuries so bad? Well, obviously, we're bringing in this physical component where we're causing harm to the child. But if a child is injured, 
They are no longer participating in the sport, which means they're not reaping all the benefits that we already talked about. In fact, we're introducing some negative outcomes with injury. Because of the injury and because of the fact that they're not around the team or they're rehabbing or they can't play, they might become depressed. They might have a lower self-esteem. They might withdraw from other activities as well. Maybe their schoolwork suffers because they aren't participating in doing that thing that they really enjoy. So injuries are the second major issue that we're seeing in youth sport today. The third one, and there was a whole book just written about this, is the over-specialization of children. What do we mean by over-specialization? Well, over-specialization means we're taking children from playing those six, seven sports that I was talking about, and we're funneling them into one sport at a very early age. And why are we doing this? Well, in part because of that cost structure that we talked about. There might be costs or financial burdens that a family can't meet to allow their child to play more than one sport. But oftentimes what we're seeing is parents dictating that a child specializes at an early age because they want to see that child succeed in that sport at a high rate. Maybe they want to see their child get a college scholarship or play professionally someday. And they think that by specializing in that sport, that will enable them to do that. And that's something that I did as well. It's not a new trend. It's something that's continuing. When I was 10 years old, I went from playing all of those sports I already mentioned down to playing only soccer. And I played soccer 12 months a year. I played soccer even in the wintertime when I was playing indoor soccer. But the problem with specialization is that the idea behind it is actually false. It doesn't come to fruition. The belief that if you specialize at an early age, you have a greater likelihood to go on and play at a high level in college or in the professional leagues is false. In fact, people have found that early specialization can actually lead to a decrease in your likelihood of going on and playing professionally. Because what studies and research has shown is that if a child plays multiple sports, it actually helps the child develop different type of muscle groups. It helps them develop different skill sets and different knowledge bases that they can then transfer back into the sport that they are best at. So think about this. If you're playing soccer 12 months a year, you're only developing very specific skills that are applicable to soccer. But if you're also playing basketball, if you're also running track and field, you're developing other skills from playing basketball, from, from doing track, that can transfer into the game of soccer. And you're also decreasing likelihood of burning that child out from playing soccer 12 months a year because you're getting them other activities to do. So the multiple sports helps the child develop their muscles better and it allows the muscles that they use at a high rate in one sport to get some rest when they're playing the other sport. As a sport manager, we should be aware of this and we should look to encourage children to participate in multiple sports. This is something that I saw as a high school coach when we had multiple athletes on our high school team at the varsity level came up to myself and our head coach and asked if they could kick for the football team or asked if they could run cross country. And we always encourage the children to do that for multiple reasons. One, if they're going to get enjoyment from doing those other sports, they should do them. And two, those sports actually provide different skills that could benefit them on the soccer field. So as sport managers, again, we want to encourage children to participate in multiple sports. We don't want to try to set in policies or rules that are going to inhibit their ability to do so. Or we don't want to set into place different cost structures that are going to be prohibitive as well.
The last issue I want to talk about deals with this notion of specialization as well, and that's the increase in pressure to win. So the privatization and specialization of youth sport has really increased the pressure on the child that is playing to win at all costs. Privatization just means taking that activity that was initially offered through the government, through the community sport programs, and turning it into a private business, a select club, where you're paying thousands and thousands of dollars in order to participate. So by having the child play only that sport and taking it from the community into this private structure where parents are paying a ton of money, all of a sudden, children feel increased pressures to win. Now, those pressures can be brought on by their coach, it can be brought on by their parents, or it can be brought on by themselves. And there's nothing wrong with winning, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to win. But if all the child is focused on is winning, that means we're no longer gaining some of those benefits that we again talked about. It also means that we have to be very careful what happens when a child does not win. There was times when I was a youth and I was playing soccer at a very high level that I wanted to win so bad that when we didn't win, all of a sudden I became depressed. I became very upset. I became very hard to deal with for my parents. I didn't want to be around my friends because I was so sad that we didn't win. So when winning becomes a part of who you are and then they become over competitive, they can lose out on those benefits. And they can bring about a lot of negative things as well. They can bring about that depression. They can bring about that self-loathing. And that might eventually lead to them not wanting to play at all. So as sport managers, we need to be aware of this pressure of winning and what it can do to a child. And we need to be aware of these other issues that we've already talked about as well. But what about parents? Because many of you might not ever be a sport manager, but many of you do or will have kids that want to participate in sport. What should your role be as a parent? What we generally see within the research is that parents fall into one of two categories when it comes to their role in youth sport. They're either that over-involved parent or they're that under-involved parent. The over-involved parent, the prime example, is the case of Todd Marinovich. And if you've never heard of Todd Marinovich, I would encourage you to go watch the 30 for 30 documentary on him because it's a fascinating case study. For those of you who've never heard of him, Todd Marinovich was a professional football player. And in fact, he grew up in California and his dad was a trainer. And his dad played football in college and he actually worked for the Raiders. And his dad had this idea about having a son and building him into the perfect football player. And so when Todd was young, his dad would have him do these ridiculous exercises. He'd have him run home from games in the dark behind his car or in front of his car so he could shine the headlights on him. He had him on a special diet and he had him lifting weights and working at a very young age. His dad was uber involved with his life and his sporting activities as a child. And as Todd Rivich got older, he started to play very well and have success and he went on to play in college at USC and then he got drafted and all of a sudden his career fell apart and it came out that he had all these drug issues that had started back when he was in college and a lot of people take that all the way back to his dad and the early pressure that he put on him because what happens when we have that over-involved parent when we have that individual that is so concerned about the performance of their child 
The child starts to want to perform well, not because they're enjoying the activity or not because of some self-worth that they gain from participation, but rather they want to perform well for their parent. They want to please their parent. They want the joy that winning brings their parent because that makes them feel more valued. And as a result of doing that, of having that over-involved parent, as a result of those feelings, all of a sudden... The child is not playing the sport and getting anything out of it besides the benefits of having their parents be happy with them. As coaches, we want to guard against this over-involved parent. We want to make sure that the child is playing and participating outside of the control of their parent. So what do you do to do that? Well, when I was coaching high school, my head coach and I had a very specific rule to deal with parents. We had what we called the 24-hour rule which was really simple and straightforward. It was that after a game, the parents had to wait 24 hours before talking to us about what happened. Because in today's world, it's so easy for them to text you or stop you on the way out or call you the next day or email you about how they're upset with what happened on the field and wanting to know why their son or daughter didn't play. But by saying you have to wait 24 hours before you talk to us about any of these issues, it gave the parent time to think about it, to calm down, to relax. And then when they came to talk to us, they would talk to us in a much more relaxed and comfortable manner. This kept them from being over-involved with what was happening in the game and what was happening on the field. We also talked to parents about not yelling at their kids while they were playing or not yelling at the refs. We wanted the kids to be involved in the game and be in the moment and enjoy the activity. And so we put these things into place to deal with the parents and have policies that we could point to to keep them from being over-involved with what was happening. Now, on the reverse side, we have the under-involved parent. This is becoming more and more of an issue because the increase that we're seeing in single-parent households and the increase in households where both parents are working. So as a result of this, where the parent's not involved at all, or very minimally in the child's youth sports, we create other problems just as potentially harmful as the over-involved parent. If the parent isn't involved at all or not coming to games or not able to get their child to, to practice, to participate, all of a sudden what's happening is that child is gaining no positive feedback from their household, no positive feedback from the adults in their lives that probably matter the most. And so they become unmotivated to play at all. Whereas the over-involved parent can also demotivate their athlete because they're too involved with it. The under-involved parent can demotivate their athlete by not being involved at all, by not showing support, by not showing that they care. Now, sometimes with these households, they're not able to be involved because they do have to work. But just by making an effort to come and watch or at least get their child to practice and ask how things are going... Those little forms of involvement can help motivate that child. So we've talked about the two extremes. So the question then becomes, well, what should the role of the parent be? Because we don't want you to be over-involved yelling at your kid, making them only care about winning. But we don't want you to be under-involved not showing up at all. So what do we want you to do? Well, what research shows is that the answer is pretty simple. The role of the parents is just to be there and support their child in what they do. Support them whether they win or they lose. Provide positive feedback to them. Because if a parent does just these simple things, the research shows 
that the child will report greater levels of enjoyment of the sport that they're participating in. And in the end, that's what we really want as parents. We want our child to enjoy what they're doing. The greater levels of enjoyment that they have, the harder they're going to work to be successful in their endeavor. So as a parent, that's what we should strive to do. Just be there and be supportive. But the parent's only one part of what goes into making youth sports possible. Another big part of what goes into it are the coaches. And so what we need to consider is what should the role of a youth coach be? The problem with this question, though, is that having someone qualified to coach youth sport is extremely hard to find. And in fact, we are struggling with that all over the country in almost all of our sports because we have found in our research that there is a severe lack of trained coaches. And in fact, under 40% of coaches in the Aspen study reported being trained in the following areas. CPR and first aid, only 39% of coaches said that they were trained in that. General safety and injury prevention, only 36 coaches, 36, only 36% of coaches were trained in that. Effective motivational techniques, only 36% of coaches were trained in that. Sports-specific skills and tactics, only 35% of coaches were trained in that. Physical conditioning, only 31% of coaches. Concussion management, only 29% of coaches. So what we're having happen is we're having coaches who don't have proper training teaching and coaching our children on how to play the sport. Now, as you can imagine, this leads to massive problems because without this training, we have individuals who are out there who are trying to get children to participate in these activities but not knowing how to adequately do though. I mean, just think about it. If I don't know how to properly motivate a child to participate who's seven years old, then that child is not going to have a good time. They might be upset. They might not be happy. And if I can't motivate them to change their attitude or change their mood and accept what we're doing and participate, then they might never come back to that sport in the future. So having these lack of trained coaches is really tough. The other big problem we have is not only that they have lack of training, but that they are too concerned with winning. Youth sport, they believe oftentimes, should be about winning championships. We want our team to be the best U7 soccer team out there. So all we focus on is how to win. The problem with that focus on winning only means that we are foregoing the development of skills oftentimes in order to win games. We might come up with a special scheme or a special play or a special system to run that ensures that we win, but might minimize the development of specific skills or tactical knowledge of the game that is so valuable at that young age. So youth sport coaches actually shouldn't focus on winning between those ages of 6 and 13. What they should focus on is developing the skill sets and the tactical knowledge of the game. Eventually, if I develop those skills well enough and I develop those tactics well enough, what's going to happen is that as the child ages, they are going to be more successful. But the problem is only 35% of coaches at the youth level said that they actually have training in sports-specific skills for the, for the sport that they're coaching. This means they don't even have the knowledge to be able to train the athlete on how to develop their own skills. 
So we have this massive issue where we're focused on winning only, we're not developing skills, and we don't have knowledge base in other things that are required for us to keep the child motivated and happy to be there and enjoy the benefits that the sport has to offer. What this leads to is these unqualified coaches, these over-involved or under-involved parents, is oftentimes having children burn out from the sports that they're participating in. And we see burnout at extremely high rates. Different studies will point to different numbers, but recent studies point to at least 70% of U.S. kids drop out of sports before the age of 11. That means that they are missing out on those benefits that can befall them later on in life. Now, what are the reasons that they're citing for quitting? Besides the things that we've already talked about, the uneducated coaches, the overemphasis on winning, the over-involved parents. Well, a number of them point to the stress that's put on them by these individuals, by their parents and coaches, to perform at a high level. Another important to being burned out because they've been playing that one sport so much, they just want to break. They just want to quit and do something else. They point to increased injury rates, something else we've already talked about, getting injured over and over and over again to the point where they don't want to play the sport anymore. They cite the lack of trained coaches. They talk about starting too young and specializing too young. But I do want to end on a more positive note. Well, we can talk about the issues that are present. We've given you some strategies to try to solve them. The Aspen Institute actually has come up with an eight-part strategy to try to deal with the issues present in youth sport and to try to increase sport participation. The first step of that strategy is pretty simple and straightforward. It's that we as parents of children need to ask our kids what they want to do. Instead of forcing them into playing the sports that you like, the sports that you grew up playing, you need to ask the child what sports they might be interested in. And you need to be receptive to what they say. The second thing that the Institute recommends is something that we already talked about, and that's reintroducing free play. And they say, quote, Today, many parents are reluctant to let children ride bikes across town to play games with friends. Fear of child abduction, while extremely rare, is a psychological barrier, and crime and traffic concerns are real issues in some neighborhoods. Families are smaller, so there are often fewer siblings to play with at home. But experts recognize the need to reintroduce free play where possible, given the science. Quote, to promote lifelong, intrinsically motivated sport participation, it is imperative to build a foundation during childhood. End quote. And we actually have seen examples where states are trying to introduce free play for parents. In Utah, for example, they legalized what they called free-range parenting. And there, the state became the country's first one to formally legalize allowing kids to do activities on their own without the parents being involved. And what this does, it allows child to go out and ride their bike or walk to a neighbor's house or go to a playground. It allows them to do that without their parents. Now, this isn't going to be something that all states adopt, but it is a way to let children get out and play athlete-organized sport or be creative and engaging games and recreation outside of those formalized activities. Virginia did something a little bit more structured. Virginia passed a law that just extended recess. So there was an advocate group called More Recess for Virginians that really pushed this through, and the law allows school systems to count recess as a part of their instructional day. 
So in, until now, the state only dictated how many hours of instruction were needed, and school systems had to squeeze in recess. But because of this law that they passed, it allowed schools to increase that time, some places from 15 minutes all the way to 30 minutes. And it allows kids to go out and play just like I described my recess as a child where we were playing football and we were getting to have this free form of play. By having a law that says we can count recess as part of the instructional day, we can afford kids those opportunities. And in fact, they're learning just as much from that unstructured form of free play as they are in the classroom. So that's a nice way to do it with a little bit more confines and a little bit more structure and protection for the children than Utah. But both of them are systems that are trying to reintroduce this free play to deal with some of these issues that we've talked about. The third recommendation that Aspen makes is encouraging sports samplings. And here they're dealing with this issue of over-specialization that we just talked about. They're saying we should encourage children to try a number of different sports while they're in grade school. This will help them identify maybe skill sets that they're good with or things that they're not so good with. It lets them pick and try different things until they become focused or want to focus on one thing themselves. Now, again, there's this issue of cost structure that's involved, but their fourth tip actually helps with this and helps us encourage sports sampling and encourage children to play multiple sports. And that's revitalizing these in-town leagues. And they say, quote, It's been a setting where kids of all skills levels and backgrounds play at the same local gym or field, rarely roaming beyond the town borders. But today, house leagues can be stigmatized as inferior, a casualty of these tryout-based, early-forming travel leagues that create the best child athletes. However, if we revitalize these recreation leagues that are put on by your local rec center or your local YMCA... We are now creating a situation where everyone can be involved in that sport. And if we revitalize it some, maybe we can bring back some of those athletes that have these parents that are willing to spend all that money. If we create good, sound leagues, we're giving parents a place to take their kids to let them play in this structured form of adult organized sport. And by having these revitalized in-town leagues, we're keeping that cost structure lower, meaning we're going to allow more individuals who are in that lower end of household incomes to participate in sports, not just one sport, but maybe try a couple of different sports. The fifth recommendation that the Aspen Institution gives is think small, meaning we don't have to go out and build these massive complex or these massive new rec centers to encourage sport participation amongst youth. All we need to do is provide some space for the children. Maybe that's just setting up a half a basketball court in an urban area where we don't have much space or setting up one soccer field in a space that we have. We don't have to build these massive entities. All we need is some space. Think about child-organized sports. They don't need all that space. If we just give them a field or a court to participate on, they can go and they can make up the rules. They can go and engage in this free form of play. Not everything has to be massive. And so often in sport management, we think of having the biggest and best facilities. But these small facilities can actually be just as beneficial, if not more beneficial, for the community because they provide that space for children to go and engage in that free play. The sixth recommendation they give is to design different activities, different sports for development. Make them geared towards the development of those outcomes that we previously talked about. The seventh thing they say, 
points back to one of the major issues is train all coaches. Coaches should be trained not only in the sport that they're coaching so they can help develop the skills necessary for that sport and teach kids different tactics involved in it, but they all should should be trained in CPR and first aid to help prevent and treat injuries. They should also have some type of training in how to deal with children, how to help children who are coming out who might have anxiety about participating or be scared of being involved in that activity. So train them in motivation. There's simple courses that you can take to do this, or you can even provide these courses through your local YMCA or your local youth community center so that we provide not only the sport for them or the league structure for them, but also a little course where we can teach those individuals who want to coach some basic rules of the game, some basic tactical and skill development, and then teach them about how to deal and motivate child. Because while a lot of those individuals that coach are parents, and they might know how to deal with their specific child, that doesn't mean that they know how to deal with 20 children all at once or someone else's child. And finally, the Aspen Institute recommends emphasizing injury prevention. Having trained coaches will help with that, but we want to make sure that we have rules in place as an organization, as we previously talked about, to help keep our children safe. Having a child become injured is going to potentially take them out of participating in that activity altogether. It might also preclude them from going to partake in other activities. One of the major concerns that we really need to think of today with prevention is the risk of concussions. And the Project Play study that we've been talking about here that Aspen did found that 9 out of 10 parents have safety concerns, and half of them describe those concerns as major concerns. Both mothers and fathers said that concussions are the most worrisome of those injury concerns. So hopefully our conversation today has helped you understand all the benefits that children can get from participating in youth sport. And these aren't just benefits that are realized in the moment, but they're benefits that can have a lasting effect on the individual all the way through adulthood. And maybe just as important as understanding the benefits is hopefully this conversation has shown some light on what is keeping children from realizing those benefits by understanding the hindrances, by understanding how parents and coaches might be constricting child participation in sports, we can better understand the corrective actions that we need to take as parents and as sport managers to make sure that that doesn't continue into the future. The Aspen Institute, as we outlined, gave us a great model to follow to remove some of those hindrances having these eight steps in place or these eight action items of things that we can do. As sport managers and those individuals that might be dealing with youth participants, we should take note of these recommendations to try to ensure that sport at the youth level is something that is available to everyone. To try to make sure that the children that are participating have the option to participate in multiple sports. That they have the opportunity to try different things and to gain the full value of that adult structured activity. And finally, we want to make sure that we're not providing only that adult structured activity, but also providing children with free play or activities in which they can set the rules, where they can set the guidelines and be creative and practice those problem solving skills that we value so much as adults. 
If you have any questions about youth sport participation or about issues facing youth athletes, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at the sport professor. Please follow us so you can stay up to date with upcoming podcasts and get additional insight into what we're doing. Please also go on and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify to the podcast so that way you can make sure not to miss out on any upcoming episodes. Until next week, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast.